You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 133 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am okay. Thanks, Valerie. If we were going to do a score out of 10 this week, I yes. would probably be about an 8, I think. Oh, that's pretty good. I, I, I like know, I'm, I'm lifting. Yes. <laughs> lifting. Despite right. NaNoWriMo, I'm, list, I'm lifting. Oh, yes. How is NaNoWriMo going? Were you busy writing 1,667 words per day? I, well, yes. At this stage, I am on track. I have over 10,000 words since we last spoke. Um, and I have been, been – my, my average is slightly above 1667 per day. Ooh. So, so far, so good. But um, this week, I think things may slow down a bit because I have a very, very busy week ahead. So, I think that possibly things might go a bit pear-shaped. But we shall see. We'll see how we go. Great. And hmm. are you posting on Facebook your Write a Book with Al? Hashtag Write a Book with Al. I am. I'm posting on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter because I just can't help myself. Um, and yes, the hashtag is write a book with Al and also hashtag NaNoWriMo. Um, it was quite an interesting thing though, because there's, there are several other authors, um, who are, you know, playing along with me. And one of them is Tim Harris. Hello, Tim Harris, if you're listening, who is a children's book author. And we were discussing the other day how our, comfortable spot for writing on a daily basis is around about a thousand words okay. it's that sort of you know about then is where I sort of really start to think oh, I've had enough I'm going to walk away from this now I've run out of puff if you if you like so mm. pushing through that extra 600 odd words is actually really hard like when you're used to kind mm. of because um, I think we've talked about before it, it usually takes me a approximately an hour to write, you know, a thousand, maybe 1200 words. Mm. Um, and that's sort of where I stop. And so to just push through to those extra, it's only really, you know, what, four paragraphs, five paragraphs, um, is probably the slowest part of the whole thing. That's where my wow. brain starts to creak. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. And, and he's the same. Are you trying to get into a routine or are you just writing whenever in snatched time? Uh, well, no, I, I'm writing when I can. So, you know, that's, so yesterday, for example, on the weekend, for example, I, um, couldn't do, you know, about an hour and a half, which is what we need for about 16, 1700 words. Um, so I did three, three, uh, bursts of 500 words in 30 minutes. So I, I have a hash, yeah. So I have a hashtag, hashtag five hundred in thirty, and you'll find oh, it on yes. Twitter and Facebook. Lots of people use it, and it's yes. just they, people will say, "I'm about to do a five hundred in thirty. If anybody wants to join me," um, and so you pop it up and you write for thirty minutes, yeah. and you try to write five hundred words in that thirty minutes, and it's a really good um, psychological tool because. 
you can do anything for half an hour. Yeah. Like half an hour is not hard and half an hour can be done, you know, whatever you're doing, you can kind of wedge half an hour in. Yep. So if you think all I've got to do is get 500 down, you usually end up writing slightly more, um, yeah. hopefully. But even if you don't, well, you've done 30 minutes, you've got something down and you can probably wedge in another half an hour later in the day, which is what I did yesterday. I had three bursts of half an hour and I managed to get – 1600 words done or something like that so do you find when you do your 530 though that you pretty much stick to the 30 or sometimes you get so carried away you go overboard like no I stick to the 30 because I've flagged it on social media so I flag 30 minutes and that means that I need to come back 30 minutes later and just you know I let see. people know how I went and so that's what that's what happens it's, it's like an accountability thing again it's yeah. I'm here I'm going to be here for 30 minutes and I'm going to come back at the end of 30 minutes and tell you how I, how I got on so there's that certain sort of performance anxiety that comes yeah. with it and which do you is, turn you know, off email like do you make sure you don't check email and social media during that time oh definitely it's Mm. it's very much a it's a little bit like remember john birmingham was talking um when we interviewed him a few episodes ago about the pomodoro technique Mm -hmm. where you have your 30 minute timer it's Mm. it's exactly the same as that it's just like and as he said i mean i remember him saying you can do anything for 30 minutes and it's it's very very true yeah Yeah. so um it's a really worthwhile technique if 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 you are struggling to get your words done for nano um just try breaking it down instead of thinking oh god i have to sit there for hours at night and do this, try wedging it into three 30-minute sections per day and you might actually find that works better for you. You know what? You've just given me an idea because – so I'm not doing NaNoWriMo, but I have Mm. a giant um, document that I need to edit and I have – admittedly been putting it off and putting it off and so that's what I'm going to do 30 minute sprints of just Mm. 30 minutes of editing and just make Mm. myself do it and see Mm. whether that will help me get over my procrastination well it it kind of does yeah because you just sort of sit there and go well you know I've got half an hour before lunch I'll do it now you know it's that kind of stuff or I've got half an hour at lunch I'll do it now um and it's you feel so much better at the end because you've done something productive and useful instead instead of guilt exactly Mm. that horrible crippling guilt (laughs) anyway so apart from editing a document what are you up to oh what have I been up to I have um I've been recovering from sort of like this little lurgy uh lurgy oh still yes so you might see that my voice hard it's like GIF, GIF. It's definitely a hard GIF. I, I can't call them GIFs. So I'm never going to. They're going to be GIFs forevermore. But anyway, Lurgy. Yeah, Lurgy. Um, and uh, yeah, I did, so I lost my voice for a whole week. It's still, it's you only just coming back, you may hear. I and can so hear. Um, I've just been trying to stay on top of things while recovering. But, you know, I'm definitely on my way up. So I'm very excited because yes. I want to get back into life and start talking again. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've missed your voice. What can we say? It's been a terrible thing. <laughs> oh, you say that so convincingly. Well, you know, I, I am feeling very sad for you. It's true. Well, in the meantime, we want to give a shout out to Tracy Hewitt because Tracy has left us a lovely review on iTunes and has called it plenty of helpful information. And Tracy has said, 
all kinds of useful information in these podcasts. Thanks for the know-how, the inspiration and the laughs. Alison and Valerie are regular travel companions in my car. I live in rural Australia, so car trips are often long. But with these two along for the drive, the trip goes much faster and more enjoyably. (laughs) How hilarious. We're we're doing roadies now. I've got to say I like the idea of doing a roadie more than I like the vacuuming or the painting or, you know, many of the other things that we we apparently do. Oh, no, I I like the vacuuming and the laundry and stuff. I think that that's really cool as well. No matter where you listen to us, I think that um, – Oh, no, do- I agree with that. But I like to think of myself in a car with the wind blowing oh, in yes. my hair more like- so than I like to think of myself vacuuming. Trust yeah. me. It's a bit like Thelma and Louise. We're kind of yeah, doing virtual is. Thelma and Louise. Okay, I bag shotgun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you, Tracy. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to leave us that review. And if any other listeners have uh, 30 seconds to spare to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Hmm. So shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week? Let us do that. Well, since we were talking about NaNoWriMo, I thought it would be useful to look at um, this uh, link, which is on Lifehacker, and it's called Top 10 Tools to Jumpstart Your NaNoWriMo Novel. Now, just in case you have only recently joined us and you think that we are talking a foreign language Mm. and you don't know what the word NaNoWriMo means, it stands for National Novel Writing Month. And during this month, people from all over the world join in and they try to write 50,000 words in this month, which is the equivalent of approximate, well, is the equivalent of 1,667 words per day. Not everyone reaches the 50,000, but it's a great, wonderful um, community exercise that keeps you accountable to other NaNoWriMers. And um, it's a lot of fun. And Alison is obviously doing it. And with her hashtag write a book with Al, so are many other people. Now, we've obviously started November already, but you know what? It's never too late because you can always do NaNoWriHuffMo if you (laughs) really want to. (laughs) (laughs) NaNoWriWaxMo. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, just get into the the spirit of it. So I thought that this um, post was good because in case you're – then that's why I was also asking you some of those questions earlier about whether you get into a routine or whatever – because some of the suggestions that they've got is um, find an inspiring workplace because um, while Alison might write, you know, just in, in, in when she can, sometimes if you want to set a particular space and go, okay, you know what, at 10 o'clock or 8 o'clock, whatever o'clock it suits you, I'm going to sit on my balcony with my special notebook or my computer or whatever and um, try and and bash out 1,667 words or however many words you can, that might be a useful thing to work out some kind of routine. Uh, Alison also mentioned the Pomodoro kind of equivalent, like your 500 um, words in 30 minutes, which is also useful. But another thing you might be able to do as part of that ritual is you might have a special notebook. You know, that special, that, that beautiful notebook that you've always wanted to write in, but you're not sure what to write in it because you don't just want to write your to-do list, well, write your NaNoWriMo writing. Um, Another one I think is good is, interestingly enough, is um, even though they say suggest a good pen, they also suggest a good pencil. And personally, I find I just am freer with a pencil. 
Mm-hmm. And you work out what's good for you. You try a pen and a pencil and see what works for you. But I know that when I've got a good pencil, not a shitty HB one, but a nice 2B pencil and that's kind of thick and not too thin. Did you just swear? I, I said shitty. I didn't say the other bad word. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, a I'm crappy just, pencil, you know, a not good pencil. Anyway, sorry. A fabu- when you've got a fabulous pencil that yes. is not an awful pencil. Not an yes. awful pencil. Sorry, everyone. But I didn't say the other bad word. I know. Um, I'm, I'm, so, yeah. But when you sorry. have the, the good pencil, it can be really, I don't know, I guess it's because you think it's not permanent. It's not like ink. For me, psychologically, I just can, I can just go blur. I can just write and write and write with a pencil. So, you know, have a look at um, the other suggestions. Um, are there any in the list that appeal to you? We'll put the link in the show notes, of course, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au if you want to check them out. Well, I have to say that I do think um, a lot of this stuff is accessorising, which is fine. Accessorising is important <laughs> if you want to be um, – Yeah, I understand that. If you like accessories. (laughs) Many people like a good accessory. I get that. Um, So, you know, there's there's, uh, there's Ulysses, which is a writing text editing program. There's, uh, which I know Alastair Dawes, who is one of our community members, uh, has written several blog posts about and really likes. Mm. And, of course, there's Scrivener, which, of course, our Natasha Lester, um, our presenter, is a a mad fan of. But most of it, I think, is dressing. And I think that at the end of the day, um, Nana Ryan, is about opening a document or a notebook and writing the words and that's what you need to focus on. Um, I had a question the other day through my Facebook which was, Alison, you know, what what writing program do you use, blah, 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 and I was like, yeah, I use Word. Um, but there is one thing here that I would absolutely, totally and utterly agree with and it is number one and that is that the, one of the things that you most need for NaNoWriMo is a good backup tool and mm. I cannot stress this enough. Make sure, because yeah. I have lost my computer, I have done this and everything has disappeared and it has been an awful, awful, awful time for me. Managed to get most of it back but at the end of the day, you need to back up your work. So, and that means backing it up regularly Um either, you know, every day or if you're working on a, on a document, what I also like to do, I have a backup at home, but I also, I just email it to my Gmail account Yes, yes, good <laughs> on idea. a regular basis yes. just to make sure that I have got other copies of, of things floating around in the universe because yes. I can tell you that the last thing that you ever want to do is have to try to recreate 20,000 words that you've written. Mm. Um, so that, I think, is the number one. That's probably the best tip in the entire link at Lifehacker. Yes, particularly if you do end up winning NaNoWriMo and you reach 50,000 words, you don't want to be losing that 50,000 words. Huh? No, that's right. That's right. And also, just while we're on NaNo, and this is something that I've only really learned about this year, um, I just want to give a little shout out to a couple of um, young friends of mine who are, uh, one of them is a friend of uh, Book Boy, my, my blogging son, and one of them is the son of a uh, of a famous author, as he likes to put himself, who's in my Twitter community. Um, I just want to give a little shout out to Hamish and to Jackson and to say good luck because they have undertaken the Young Writers Program of NaNoWriMo. And that is a thing that I did not know existed until these two guys started doing it. So young writers can nominate a a number. They don't have to do 50,000. They can nominate a number of words that they're going to try to do. And I think both of my guys are doing 20,000 words in the 30 days. And they are 
young. We are talking, you know, 14 and under here. And they are, both of them, I'm keeping an eye on their word counts and they are absolutely smashing it. So I just want to give a little shout out to all the people that any of you might know who are doing the young writers version of NaNoWriMo and, you know, go team. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're getting FOMO, you're not doing NaNoWriMo and you're getting FOMO, gee, there's a lot of abbreviations here. I know, we are just rocking it. (laughs) Then remember, it's not too late. You can do NaNoWriHalfMo. Yes, I, I think it's a thing. No, no, oh, it's right a thing. Yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a thing, Val. It's Val's thing. Everybody, she's going to start her own yeah. hashtag. No, own hashtag. No, no, right, half mile. I think so. All right, let's move on to I found this interesting link from a blog post called uh, The Life and Times of Miguel Olmedo Morel. Oh. <laughs> and um, it, this is this is interesting. It's particular. I think it, sh- it should be interesting to you, Al, because you really love maps. Hmm. Now, this post is called Cartography Software for Fantasy oh. Writers because, you know, often when you read a fantasy book, there are whole worlds in there and whole maps. So you can see where the tribes are invading from wherever and you can see where the mountains are and you can see where the castle is and you can see where the lake is and, and the hobbits live and stuff. So if you've got it in your head, sometimes it can be useful to actually make the map of it. And if you're not a good drawer and you actually want to, you know, include the map in your book, it might be useful to use this cartography software. Now, I haven't used any of this software, but Miguel Olmedo Morel has. Mm. And, um, he has he has tried um, a few actually, and he has tried campaign cartographer. He has mm-hmm. tried Inkscape, and his favourite one is Ortelius, which is uh, you know as it says, it's it's you can draw your map of of all of your different um, nations and states and whatever, and bring your world to life on on the page. So it can be a useful tool if you're whether you're mapping it out just for your own internal purposes, so you, you have a better understanding of of where everything is in your book, or if it's something that you actually want to give to your readers. Wow, how amazing. I had no idea that that was even a yeah, thing. You'd you think go. I would have worked that out. Given how bad my drawing is, I probably should have done that. I put a little diagram. So obviously like I'm in the middle of this of this new manuscript and I was um, I was doing a drawing of a castle. I had this this idea in my head for a castle and I was trying to work out how this thing would work, you know. So I did this draw, this little drawing of what this castle would look like in, in its location and put it on Facebook so people could just see exactly how, appall- <laughs> how <laughs> appalling my <laughs> drawing is because oh it was so bad. Everyone was just like, seriously? I'm like, in my head, that looks amazing. <laughs> it was bad. It was really bad. Well, next time you can use some software to help you. Yes, I think. clearly I need that. Yes. yes. Okay, thanks right. for that. I want to move on to a post that I found on salon.com and this isn't specifically about writing but it's called forget about inbox zero the real problem with email isn't your unread messages 
Now, a lot of people have spoken to me about um, that they feel that their email is out of control, that they get too many, that they have to unsubscribe from lots of things and turn off notifications and stuff like that. So I thought that it would be useful to, to talk about this because I know that when you're writing, email can also be a real excuse, like a form of procrastination because you feel like you're still doing work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this article is actually quite long because um, it's it's quite a analysis into the world of, of, of email and what, you know, you can do right and wrong in it. Uh, and I think that it points out a few things about the fact that you should schedule your email and not just use it as your go-to fill-in kind of thing. And it talks about that people are either um, – they either react to email or they have control over it. And when you react to email is that, you know, something comes in, you feel you need to respond. But if you have set times for it, then you can make sure that you are in control of when you are spending your time on email. And another interesting app which people might find useful is um, Boomerang. I'm not sure if you know Boomerang, Al? No, I don't. Okay, so there's this thing where um, – because so, sometimes people, uh, you know, might – see this – I used to do this. I used to send emails at 3 a.m. and I used to think, oh, my God, what people – what are people going to think of me sending emails at 3 a.m.? They're going to think I have no life. And many <coughs> moons ago when I actually, you know, cared about such things but I don't anymore, um, I used to – I'll tell you a secret, Al. Okay, I I'm ready. Used to, I won't tell a soul. Don't tell anyone. I used to change the time on my computer. <laughs> so Does that not surprise me in the slightest, people Valerie. People wouldn't think I'm such a loser that I'm sending them email to again. <laughs> I, now I don't care. You don't give her, you know. But anyway, if you She's do She's bad care, now, everyone. She's brave. If you do care, there's an app called Boomerang and you can actually schedule when your emails are going to go out. So you can write all of your emails at 3 a.m. But then you can say, I want you to send them all at 8.30 a.m. so people think you're more normal. Mm-hmm. And it's a free app like on Gmail. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I have tried it as well, but I don't try it anymore because, like I said, I don't care anymore. Um, okay. But do you have a problem with email? Do you actually think it's a it's a issue that you struggle with? I'm curious. No, seriously, because some people do. Um, yes, I guess I do. I mean, we had a conversation a, a few weeks ago. I think maybe not on the podcast, maybe on the podcast, where I had over three thousand emails in my inbox, oh, and yeah. you were horrified. Yeah. Everyone was horrified. Yeah. Kelly Exeter, in particular, was horrified. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, look, my issue with email, I guess, is that I do get a lot. And I think my biggest issue with email is I can, I find email relatively easy to ignore unless I'm waiting for something. Oh. And as author, like and I know that are, like a book deal, like an editor to get back to me, like a, you know, anything. Yep. Um, as an author, as a writer, a freelance writer, any kind of writer, you do spend a lot of your life waiting for people to get back yeah. to you. And if it's a big thing, like as book deal or something like that, then it's, a, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around yes. it as well. Yes. So, 
you know, I know that um, several of my author friends and I have discussed this, that if you're waiting for something, you, you're, you're not just – like you're actively refreshing your email inbox like yeah. 50 times a day thinking yeah. maybe you've missed it, maybe you've missed it. You know, it's a very tense time and I think that's when I have a real issue with email. I don't actually care if people think I'm a loser for emailing them at 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> but I do wish people would get back to me like now. <laughs> I know. Isn't it frustrating? It can be very oh, frustrating. And, and I you know, know, publishing is so slow. And so you do spend a lot of time waiting. So if that classifies as an email problem, which I think in certain, under certain circumstances it is, um, then yes, Valerie, I have a problem. <laughs> I guess it's a different kind of problem, but I, mm-hmm. I totally hear where you're coming from. Mm. It's like, it's, 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 uh, it's just, it is, it's anxiety inducing, isn't it? Mm, it is. Anyway. It's really very awful. Let's not talk about email anymore because it's no, stressing. I'm stressed already. Yes, we're yeah. starting to stress <laughs> out. And move on to I saw this post earlier this week um, called What is Clubsy Writing? And I didn't oh. actually read the post because it brought to mind something that I am seeing a little bit of and it's concerning because okay. I feel it is clumsy writing and I think it applies in both fiction and in non-fiction. So whether you're writing, you know, a story for a novel or whether you are writing uh, like an article for like a feature article for a magazine, this is a, a sin, I believe, <laughs> um, of clumsy writing. And that is when you take the lazy way out of, and instead of using a transition or some kind of description or some kind of other technique, you ask a question. Oh. So in fiction, it might be, you might, your character might be, you know, entering a room and instead of actually, you know, showing don't telling, not telling, mm-hmm. or, or instead of perhaps having a conversation or, or, or revealing stuff in some other way through perhaps behaviour, the, the, you write an inner, inner monologue of, I wonder what is in this room. Or, and, oh. then, and then I walk over to the box, what's in this box? And I, uh, you know? Right. So. Lots of questions like that 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 um, that you then answer, but mm. that should actually be told in, in a different way. And likewise, okay. in nonfiction, if you're writing a feature article, instead of using a transition to move on to the next subtopic or the next you know piece of information that you want to reveal, uh, the lazy way again, I think, is asking a question. So mm. it's weird because I'm seeing more of it. You know, mm. I don't know if you've noticed that, Al, but. It's um, true. No, <laughs> I, I haven't. But you know, I have to say that I don't read. Like you know, you, we were discussing earlier prior, prior to the podcast the fact that you read all of the papers on the weekends and all of the magazines and all of the things. And I'm not reading as many of those at the moment as you are because I'm writing um, uh, fiction. You know, I'm yes, in the, immersed in something I else. I was reading a fiction manuscript the other day, and there were eight on one page. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Yes. Anyway. It's okay. not ideal. You're not ideal. So, and, and why do you think it's not ideal, particularly in the world of fiction? 
Oh, it just takes you out of the. It takes you out of the story. It's telling. It is yeah. just another way of telling. It's not showing. It is another way of telling. It has to be. I mean, if you're going to, it can be done in first person, um, but it has to be done well. Mm. Um, but it's you know, if you're writing third person and you suddenly put a question in, you know, even if you italicized it, you know, he thought, um, you you are removing yourself from the character's head and putting your, you know, you're going into a into a telling situation, not a showing situation. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. All right. Anyway, shall we move on to our giveaway? Let us do that immediately. So exciting. As you know, uh, November is not only the month of NaNoWriMo, it's a mega month for our competition because we're giving away a Surface Pro 4. And this is super exciting because we want to invite you to unleash your creativity with our competition and you have until the 30th of November to do it. Now, we'll put all of the details in a blog post, which you can find at Writers Center com.au slash surface life but basically you can win an awesome Microsoft Surface Pro 4 which is valued at $2,799 and all you need to do on social media is complete the sentence a surface would help me create and then tell us what your surface would help you create. Now that might be a novel. It might be a piece of art. It might be whatever. Mm. And your, your entry should be a maximum of 25 words. So it's super easy. Add hashtag surface life to the end of the message, but you can use words and you can use a picture. You can use both and you can Mm. do it on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or your blog. So this competition is open to Australian residents only. And, um, you have until the 30th of November, but make sure you go to writerscenter.com.au slash surface life for all of the details and you can win a Microsoft Surface Pro 4. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Want to transform your writing process? Our course, Two Hours to Scrivener Power, shows you how to get up and running on the world's most powerful writing software program, Scrivener. Presented by super user and author Natasha Lester, you'll learn how to get started with Scrivener and master it, and learn from Natasha's insights on how to navigate and optimise the program so you can transform and simplify your writing process. If you've been waiting for the right opportunity to learn Scrivener, this is a step-by-step guide to help you get there. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentercomau slash power. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? I'm ready. Okay, I was going to see if you can pronounce it. I'll spell it to you. Mm-hmm. It's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. No. <laughs> Zizigy. In a, in a word, no. <laughs> this is such a cool word. Zizigy. I'm bouncing up and down. I'm so excited. Zizigy. Zizigy. You're bouncing yes. up and down. Yeah, on my chair. Um. Zizigy. Okay. I love just saying it. Zizigy. Anyway, okay. this is what a does it real, mean? Well, it's a real word. It doesn't contain a single vowel, as you can see. Zizigy. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, you might not use it very often because it refers to a very specific thing, although you might use it in the month of November 
you know, much more often than other times because Wikipedia says that it is a a straight line configuration of three celestial bodies in a gravitational system. Now, it's relevant. It's relevant. Zizigi. Zizigi. I love saying it. And I mentioned this. Thank you to Dean for the reminder because the supermoon is on the 14th of November and it will be the closest full moon to Earth since 1948. And when the moon, Earth and sun are lined up like that, that's an example of a zizigi. Well, there you go. the things you learn, the Valerie. Things you learn. I'm so glad that we have these conversations. I mean, honestly, my, my mind has expanded. And also, thanks for the reminder about the supermoon because I'm quite excited about that. Yeah, there you go. See, now you I, can tell your kids that's I'm part of the to. zizigi. I'm going to look so impressive. Exactly. Zizigi. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Zizigi. All right, I'll stop. Yes, yeah, yeah, now's right. the time to stop. Shall we move on to our writing residence? Let's. Who have we got? Oh, my God. So exciting. Oh, my God. Okay. So exciting. Well, we have none other than. Now, as you will know, like a couple of years ago, the world went nuts over the over the Divergent series of books. I do remember Divergent, that. Divergent, then Allegiant, then Insurgent. And um, not only were they Everywhere, like everyone was reading them. Uh, they got made into Hollywood movies, very successful Hollywood movies starring Shailene Woodley and, you know, a cast of, you know, fantastic characters. Um, but super, super popular, t- took the world by storm, and they were written by um, a YA author, Veronica Roth. Now, mm. Veronica is releasing the next in what will be a duology. And oh. it's actually – so Divergent was set in um, uh, dystopian Chicago and this new duology, the new series, is actually set in a whole other world. It's also a YA audience. I've been lucky enough to read an arc, you know, an advanced mm-hmm. uh, version of the book and it's fantastic. It is – you know, it has similar themes to Divergent and it's ju- it was just fascinating to be able to talk to Veronica to tap into, you know, how she tapped into that zeitgeist mm. and um, how what then happened to then get her, her 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 movie deals and how it became a phenomenon and then now how she's going to follow it up. So mm. let's have a chat to Veronica Roth. Thanks so much for joining us today, Veronica. Thanks for having me. Now, I read your latest book on the weekend, Carve the Mark, and devoured it. Uh, but for those readers who haven't read the book yet, can you just give us a brief idea of what it's about? I will do my best. It's been difficult to summarize this one, but um, <laughs> it's about a young man named Akka who, um, along with his brother, is kidnapped and taken into an kind of enemy country. And while he's there, he meets a young woman named Syra, who has, you know, a, a great number of difficulties in her life. Yes. And they uh, they kind of band together um, for the good of his, his brother, but, uh, you know, for various other reasons. 
um, against her her brother, who is the dictator of this like enemy country, mm. um, and it's in space. <laughs> so yes, that, that is the thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I got sucked in from chapter one. Now it is in space, and I wanted to talk to you about that because <laughs> it is you were taken. I lived the entire weekend in another world. So this world has is in space and it has different nations and languages and rituals and sovereigns and right. all with their own, you know, sometimes complicated way of ruling and living and diff- very different societal expectations, just as you would, you know, in, in our world, but it's not our world. But I'd like to talk to you about this other world because it plays such a big part in this in the story. Did you start off with the idea for... what was going to happen in the book or did you start building the world in your head um, and go from there? You know, it was kind of everything at at once. Um, So one thing makes the other thing work in, uh, I will explain. (laughs) um, Originally I I had the very basic plot idea a long time ago when I was young, actually Um, just Akos' story, you know, he's taken away from his family he finds that he oddly understands his enemies, the people who have taken him. And then he has to come back and see and find a way to relate, even though he's been through this trauma and had these uh, experiences that they can't understand. So that kind of idea has fascinated me forever. And I think to a certain degree, that's also the story of divergence. So it's obviously mm. a theme that I find very interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so I had that in mind. But I kept trying to put his story in different settings. So I had high fantasy first, and then I tried urban fantasy, and then I tried sci-fi, and then uh, I went back to fantasy. And now the only way that it worked was this time. Um, wow. I put 10 different versions of the story on my computer. <laughs> but Have this you, time it was, you know, it sci-fi worked. fantasy. And it, yes. It so did, did yeah. you write 10 different versions set in 10 different worlds? Well, no, just pieces. Um, so yes, but only the start. So the first 20 pages, the first 50 pages, and in the longest example, the first 300 pages, which, whoa, was wow. hard to let go of. But oh I, never, my God. I never finished. Yeah, and it never really uh, worked before. And this is, you know, we're talking about high school and parts of college, so this is sure. a long time ago. But So yeah. when you wrote each of these versions, especially the 300 page version, did you, did it each time, were you following the same journey of, of ACOS? I was, yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason it didn't work before is because Cyro wasn't there. Mm. Um, part of what makes the story interesting to me is that it's these, these two people with two different perspectives on mm. the situation between their cultures and their countries and their, and, you know, in their political situation, so, you know, she's insisting that he really is one of them. And he's saying, no, like, I get to decide, you know, what my identity is. And so it's just the source of tension between them, which um, will develop more in the next book. But, yeah, so without both of them, it just uh, it wasn't really like doing it for me. Yes. Um, and I couldn't hold my interest. So the um, you have some chapters told from the point of view of ACOS and some chapters told from the point of view of Syrah. What did you do to switch hats? Because they are, you know, one, I mean, one's male, one's female. <laughs> they are from right. different um, enemy nations. So what did you do to get into their minds? 
I I think like with a lot of writers, but maybe more than some, um, I really struggle with changing voices. And to me, they always sound more different than they actually sound, you know, to <laughs> other people. Um, and so that's something that I, I struggled with a lot. But with Akos, I mean, I tried to keep his in first person, but it didn't work um, because he was kind of like constantly pushing me out. That's how it felt anyway. Just mm. like I couldn't get in there right. Um, and I think part of that is that his character is so like is defined frequently as being very wary um, and kind of guarded. And that's his current gift too. I mean, we see that part of his psychology expressed in his kind of ability to push out um, these supernatural forces in the, the universe. Mm. So writing it in third person was what made it work for me. And he also, uh, I thought about their kind of class differences. They're both people who come from privileged backgrounds, but that means something different to both of them. So, um, you know, he's from this like kind of low class city in, in Thuba, his country. And she is, you know, the very, at the very top of the social strata in, in Shota. So, um, she, you know, hopefully has more formal diction than him. Um, and I tried to keep that in mind too. So, and when you are building these worlds of Shotet and the other, you know, nations and and the the customs that they have, how did you keep track of all the different <laughs> things in the world and the different characteristics that each nation was supposed to have? Did you have some kind of planning board? Like on a practical level, how did you do it? Did you have like lots of post-its? Did you write out entire, you know, histories of worlds? How, how did that happen? Well, I'm not, um, I'm not big into like very formally written descriptions. Um, I just take a lot of notes. So I use Scrivener. Have mm-hmm. you ever used that? Yeah, program? I love Scrivener. Mm. Yeah, Scrivener is great. And you can, you know, you can create all kinds of documents and you can save pages and you can, you know, do all kinds of things. So that's mostly how I keep track because I create like a, a series of documents that no one else would be able to understand because they're just gibberish. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, they help me keep it straight. Yeah, um, for sure. But it helps to have a couple guiding principles for each one, you know. Um, I think in the book itself, I list what each country kind of worships as a way of defining it. So for the Shotet, it's the current, and for Thuva, it's the ice flowers. So to me, that was like a way of keeping them separate. Mm. Um, so things like that kind of helped me to remember, you know, like these people are about this series of things. <laughs> these people are not, you know. And yeah. they're at war, so they're if they're distinct, they take pride in how distinct they are from each other. Now, when you, I understand that you wrote Divergent while on your, according to Wikipedia anyway, <laughs> while <laughs> on your winter break in your senior year at Northwestern University. Is that true? Um, kind of. I mean, <laughs> yes, I wrote a huge portion of it over winter break, most of it. Uh-huh. Um, the original draft for Divergent was, 45,000 words, so oh. more than half. You know, so it's a uh, thing. I wrote it all over winter break. It's like, how? Did, did you sleep? Did you eat? <laughs> like, yes, I did. Um, I did write it fast, but that was the rough draft, and uh, it just grew from there. But um, 
you so, know, I, my parents were on vacation and my friends hadn't come back from school yet. So I was just sitting there watching Veronica Mars and, <laughs> and reading <this> manuscript. <laughs> so take me back to when you wrote it. Uh, did you um, imagine it was going to be such a phenomenal success? Oh, no. <laughs> no. I mean, no. I thought – when I was done with it, I was like, oh, let's let's see what I can do with it. Mm. Um, and that was as far as my imagination for it went. I mean, I I love writing, so and I knew how young I was, you know, so I was fully prepared to write multiple manuscripts that never went anywhere. Um, but it just didn't end up that way. You know, I, I feel like I, it was good timing, but also, you know, mm. a little bit of luck. So, so tell us about the process of getting that published. What exactly were the steps that you took to get Divergent uh, until Divergent got accepted? Well, um, you know, the, the first thing I think was figuring out what I wanted. So there's different ways to be published. Mm. Um, and I, I figured may as well go for it. So I went, I decided, you know, a big publisher in the U.S. would be great. Mm. So we'll see, <laughs> see if that works. And in order to do that, you really need an agent. So then, yep. you know, I looked into how to get an agent um, and wrote my query letter and sent it out into the world. <laughs> um, but I, I met my agent originally at a writer's conference and I pitched my first manuscript to her, which was not divergent. She agreed to read it, but then ended up rejecting it. Um, <clears throat> and I sent her divergent next. So, um, so I met her there. And, uh, mm-hmm. and she loved Divergent. So it was all, I mean, and then we revised it together and sent it to, she sent it to um, editors that she knew might like it. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, that's how it came together. It was kind of fast from that point on. How fast after she sent it out did you get a, a call? And do you remember what you were doing when you got the call? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, it, was, it was four days. Four um, days? Yeah, it was like she oh sent it at the end of a week. So my, you know, Molly O'Neill, who became my editor for Divergent, um, read it over the weekend and then uh, called Joe on my agent on a Monday. So that was, it was so, I mean, I was not, <laughs> I was not ready. No. So um, when she called me, I was... <laughs> right next to the dumpsters in my apartment building um, because that was like a quiet place to take a phone call. And I was also like leaving the building okay. time, um, to go do something on campus. Anyway, so I'm like, you know, crouched next to a big garbage can. That was <laughs> when I got that call. So, you know. <laughs> really? Oh, and yeah. Wow. Okay. So obviously, um, uh, they wanted Divergent. At that time, well, when you were writing Divergent, did you already have the subsequent books, Insurgent and Allegiant, in mind when you wrote it? Or did that come, did those stories come later? I think it's kind of both at once. Um, like I knew where the story might go and I have an idea mm. for the ending of this whole series. But I also wanted to be flexible because I've heard that's a good thing to be yes. publishers. <laughs> so I was like, well, it could end here or it could be these three books, whichever ends up working. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, you know, they wanted the rest because I, I do think it's 
I mean, the first book, it's not quite a cliffhanger, but it's definitely not resolved. Mm-hmm. So I think yep. I was kidding myself a little bit, mm. thinking it could just stand alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. And so I understand that you sold the film rights for the book even before the book came out. Can you tell us about that process? Did you know that your agent was going to, you know, see if people would be interested in making it into a film? Did you ever anticipate that it was going to be made into a film? Well, I knew that, um, so I, I uh, Fuya Shabazian is my film rights manager and he works with my agent at the same company. So um, I knew he was going to take it and see, you know, see what he could do with it. But, you know, like even if a film studio buys the rights to your work, that doesn't mean that they're going to make it. So yeah. even when the rights sold, I wasn't, you know, I didn't let myself be that excited. I was like, yep. yeah, that's great. And, um, it will certainly be good in certain ways, but that doesn't mean anything. Yep. <laughs> so, um, Puya and I had a joke the whole way through, which was that we were, we would only let ourselves celebrate on the way to the premiere because up until that point, <laughs> anything can happen. Okay. <laughs> so sure. On the way to the, on the way to the premiere, I was like, Puya, can we celebrate now? She's like, yes, finally. Now, both Divergent and Carve the Mark are kind of like coming-of-age stories. You've written for a young adult audience. What is the – having said that, though, what's interesting is when – after Divergent came out, I remember I catch planes a lot on the business route between – on the eastern seaboard of Australia. And there was a period where every – you know, and they're full of business people. There was a period where every plane I was on, there were multiple business people reading Divergent. <laughs> so oh, obviously, obviously, it's. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's way more than a young adult audience. But it, essentially, it's a it's a wire book. Um, what appeals to you about about that audience? Oh man, well. Um I I don't know. So I do know. I have a lot to say about this, which is why I'm suddenly getting um, stymied by my own thoughts. But um, I think it's a really exciting period of life, first Mm. of all. I mean, it's high drama. Everything you experience feels like the biggest thing on earth because for you, it really is. You know, you feel like an adult, but you're not quite an adult yet. Um, You have a lot of first-time things, a lot of like very intense struggles in friendship and relationships. Mm. So it's just, it feels like a really fertile ground for stories. But also I think there's something specifically about young women that compels me. So certainly I love that young men or other people read my work. You know, anyone who wants to read it, it's of course like, you know, well, like welcome, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, um, when I think about who I'm writing for, it's for young women, because I think it's really easy to dismiss women at that age. Um, and it happens all the time and it really sucks. (laughs) I just really didn't want to be one of those people. I think, um, you know, I read about young men when I was that age, because that's what you do. Mm. Uh, as a woman, you learn how to identify with male stories um, and if you're lucky, you find something that speaks to you, you know, like uh, I did with Judy Bloom or um, a bunch of other authors, but um, just not as many, you know, not as many adventure stories or, or genre fiction. Mm. Um, so I guess I just wanted to write something that teenage me would like. Mm. Um, 
When yeah. when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, well, I remember when I started writing, uh, I was like 11 or 12 and my mom, she didn't let us say that we were bored. That was like a huge no, no in our house. So she'd get us these kits, you know, like build a, like a functioning fan, <laughs> like, that kind of stuff, like science kits or like, like just, you know, things to occupy us. And one of them was a make your own book kit. And I think it was the first time it occurred to me that I could write things down. And so I, I started to, and then I switched to a computer because it's easier. Um, and it was at that point I just started writing all the time and I didn't think about being a writer. You know, I didn't think about being a writer. I just Mm -hmm. wrote a lot. Um, and it wasn't until maybe high school or college that I thought, you know, people do get paid for this. (laughs) So it's possible that it could work. Yeah. So what were you writing at high school? Were you writing short stories or, or just scenes or, or, or entire books? What, what were you writing it in, when you were younger? Well, I never finished anything, but I was always writing books. Um, right. I find short stories very difficult. <laughs> so mm. I, uh, I never gravitated toward them, you know, initially. Mm. But, um, yeah, I was writing mostly uh, – kind of Lord of the Rings ripoff, I guess, early on, um, like with elves and all kinds of things. <laughs> Cause you kind of, you start out by imitating, you know, like that's a pretty yeah. normal I think, place to, to start as a young writer. You want to, um, you're figuring it out by kind of like playing in someone else's sandbox, I guess, which is why I think fan fiction is so great because you're taking something that already exists. So you don't have to do every little bit of work, but you do get to play around with your writing and be creative, and that's great. Did you write fan fiction? I didn't, no. I didn't even know that was a thing that people were allowed to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so tell us about um, the process, the creative process of writing this, the, the latest book, Carve the Mark. Now, you already had, obviously, the idea brewing in your head from when you were younger, so that was taken care of. But when you were ready to write this final, well, you know, this version of it, the version that was going to end up being, that is being published, right. um, and you had to sit down and actually produce a manuscript. Can you tell us about your writing pro, uh, writing routine or, or your creative process? Like, do you think I need to wake up and have a cup of tea and then immerse myself in this world and then write 2,000 words? Like, what's some kind of some kind of structure to your day, if there is any? I am structureless. I would say. So I'm definitely not a routine person. I try to write once a day. That's kind of my rule for myself. But if it doesn't work out, I'm not um, not too fussed about it. But um, I write better at night. So mm-hmm. that's great for my social life. Not really. Yes. Um, everyone else gets back from work and I'm like, nope, I'm starting. Um, so what do you do and- during the day? Man, I don't even know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, there's right now there's plenty of other work to do. Um, yes, of course. You know, answering emails and signing things and and kind of like brainstorming, I think, happens in the afternoon for me, like while walking the dog or going for a run or whatever. So I do fill my days with things. Just <laughs> I do my days in reverse. Like if other people relax in the evening, 
before bed, I relax in the morning and then get to work in the afternoon and continue into the night. So generally that's how it works, but I'm also just determined to be flexible. So sometimes I wake up and I start writing right away because I know that I have things to do later. So Yeah. So do you have a, a word count target or a chapter target or something like that? I tried to have a word count target, but then I found that I would uh, avoid the scenes that were stressing me out by just like writing a lot in one scene. <laughs> Makes sense. You know, like I'm, I'm just going to make just like tread water here for, you know, a thousand words so oh, that I can fun. avoid the stressful thing. So I can't do that. Um, I split it up by scenes and I try to get through um, at least one a day. And if not, you know, if they're shorter, then I'll do more than one. But, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what's going to happen? Are you a plotter? Now I am. I didn't oh, used to be. Okay. Yeah. You mean Divergent with, was like. Yeah, Divergent. What was, well, that wasn't plotted? No, I mean, so I had a kind of loose idea of where it was going, but I had no idea how it would end. And I ended up writing the ending like a few times because I couldn't figure out yeah. how to, you know, bring it to a conclusion. But then each subsequent installment became more and more planned out until now Carve the Mark was definitely just outlined, you know, beginning to end. And then the second Carve the Mark book, whatever it will be called, mm-hmm. is like such a detailed outline. It was like 25 pages of outline. Really? So, and Wow. So how, why do you think you've developed into that? Is it, and do you enjoy it more or less? Um, you know, I think I did it out of necessity, you know, because when you're writing to a deadline, you can't just like wander around for four months while you're <laughs> figuring out what comes next, which is how it used to work when it wasn't my job. Mm. Um, you know, when I was a student, so I had plenty of other things to do and I didn't have to write, um, if it wasn't working or I didn't have to work on one thing in particular, but now, you know, (laughs) got to get it done and it's for work. So, um, Mm. I've let it become like more practical, more of a job for me. And so to a certain extent, like, no, I don't, I don't like it more. Um, I like that feeling of discovery, Mm. but I've been able to find it inside of the outline. So, you know, something, sometimes things still surprise you. You have to change the outline um, or something and turns out differently than you expected or, you know, mm. so. And because the Divergent series was so ridiculously successful and popular, what have you, have you felt pressure for this next series of books? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And how have you dealt with that? I try, I try not to think about it um, because that's paralyzing. And um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like every writer knows about that internal editor that you need to silence in order to take risks and get get going, really. Mm. And so that's a daily exercise for me, just letting go of um, like the constant critiquing and letting it be flawed. And so the way I deal with it is just by falling back on, I mean, it sounds silly, but, um, my mother just constantly when I was young would say like, just, just do the best you can. That's all you can do. Mm. Um, that was like the mantra of my school life. Mm -hmm. And so we never got yelled at for bad grades as long as it had been clear that we had tried. Mm -hmm. And that I think took root deep in my brain because when I was writing carve the mark, I occasionally would get very nervous about, you know, how it would be received. And then I'd always return to that. Just do the best you can. Um, that's all you can do. 
Yeah. Remember that first manuscript that you sent to the agent that she rejected before she then decided she loved Divergent? Um, Yes. What happened to that? (laughs) It is locked away somewhere where no one will ever see it. Really? (laughs) It's not good. Yeah, really. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Are you, you sure it's not good? Yes, I'm I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's not that the writing was terrible. The writing was competent, but mm. um like the characters not so great and then the whole story I don't even ugh. I'm sure there's something to rescue from it, so I might reread <laughs> it someday and try and figure out what to what to save and what to get rid of. But yeah. um in its current form, it's yeah, it was just a great exercise in learning how to finish a story for me. Yeah, sure. Have you been tempted to write mm-hmm. for other age groups? Or, or have you written for other age groups? Um, you know, not not yet, not really. I um, I feel pretty comfortable in young adults and find a lot of value and freedom in it. So mm. um, to me, that's where I'd like to stay. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what I'll do later in life. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> there's plenty of time to figure that yes. out. But for now, I'm pretty content. Yeah, of course. Now you're still. Um, it's it, well, you wrote Divergent when you were well, you know, a few years ago now, and not that mm-hmm. much older from you know being young adult. Um, to stay in this world where you your characters are at that period in life where it's a series of firsts and where they are coming of age. Do you, is there any? Do you need to do any research or or remind yourself of what it was like to be at that time or hang out with younger people or or whatever? How, how do you you know capture that that feeling so well? Well, it doesn't hurt to actually interact with them, and I yeah. get to do that on a regular basis, thankfully, um, because of events for Divergent. So mm. there's that, but also. Um, I say this I say this to my husband a lot, but you have to have grace for your younger self. So you have to be able to look back on your past experiences with fondness instead of judgment. I think a lot of people can get very embarrassed by how they things mm-hmm. they said or did when they were young. And for me, that's what helps me to remember so clearly what it was like to be that age is by looking actually letting myself um look back at what it was like and what it felt like and the things I went through it. Sorry, my nose is suddenly getting stuffed up. Um, no, it's fine. Yeah. So for me, that's, that's kind of how I've been keeping it working. Like trying to be honest with myself about where my mind really was, you know, not trying to paint my youth with like a, a rosy kind of tint, but also, you know, being kind yes. <laughs> to myself. You know, I did some very silly things. Mm-hmm. Why do you think people have responded so positively? And so why do you think it's resonated with them, your book, so far? Oh, man. I um, I feel like the I'm the least capable person of answering that question. I know. Way. Other people can uh, obviously look at it very analytically, but I'm keen, I'm keen to just get your take on it just to, you know, if you, if you have one. Well, I, I don't know. I think really it must be character based when I love stories that much, it's Mm. only because the characters stuck with me. So a lot of other things can be interesting in a story, but, um, but character is what like keeps me reading a series. Yeah. So it's 
everyone else is like me. That's why. Um, and I think Tris is kind of, I mean, she's a very flawed person and, mm. um, but you, but you root for her. So I think at the end of the day, that's probably what it's related to. I definitely think that people are interested in sorting themselves into categories though. Yes. <laughs> it's obviously something that fascinates me. Mm. Um, and it's present in a lot of stories, especially, you know, most notably like Harry Potter, mm. but, uh, but so that's probably part of it too. What faction are you, you know, find your people, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so, um, have you, are you currently writing the second book in the Carve the Mark series, whatever that's going to be called? I am. Have you finished? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, no, I'm like halfway through, so. Right. Okay. So, and I know some authors um, actually write multiple books at the same time or have a couple of books going at the same time. Are you focusing mainly on this or have you already thought out the one after that? Well, I kind of play with ideas um, so I don't forget them. So I'll, I'll write out like outlines or little paragraphs about something that I thought of that is interesting, but I really only work at one on one thing at a time. So mm-hmm. I really admire those people who can work on more than one thing. And I'm super jealous of them because mm. I think that would be a great uh, skill to have, but I'm just, you know, I need to be like fully immersed. Otherwise I get lost. Yep. Sure. So Divergent is set kind of like in a dystopian Chicago, but it is still mm-hmm. on Earth. <laughs> it's Chicago. And as we've mentioned, Carve the Mark is uh, these whole other worlds, which, uh, you know, I, and I, like I said, I did get lost. I got taken into this other world, which strangely enough was really realistic because of – the the little things because of the 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 flowers or the potions or the or the customs or whatever that you described what and i actually sat there sometimes thinking wow how did she even think of that <laughs> what inspired all of these little things that made up the world how did you you know i i guess i don't have that kind of imagination what 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 was it what was behind it for you? Well, um, I think when I think about Divergent uh, and, you know, what I would change if I did it again, mm. that's one of the things that I think about, just the detail of world building and thinking those things through beforehand. Um, it was something that I kind of wish I'd known how to do better. And really the only way that you can learn how to do it is by doing it, which is mm. horrible, um, mm. <laughs> you know. There's no like guidebook to building a universe. Um, there's a couple helpful guides, I would say, but like on the internet and stuff. But um, so I, I was just determined to do it, I think. And then I, um, I, I married someone who was very detail oriented. So mm. he's constantly pointing things out in the world around us. Like, especially with kitchen supplies for some reason. Kitchen <laughs> um, supplies. Yeah, he's got a passion for glassware. I don't, I don't understand uh, where it comes okay. from, but it's it's really great. So over the, you know, there are a couple of scenes in the years. kitchen in the book. <laughs> no. But um, you know, for the five years that we've been married, he's kind of taught me how to see things in a new way, and he finds um, he finds like ugly things beautiful in 
he helps me to like rediscover the world around me. Yeah, really. um, I don't want to get like sappy, but it that's, you know, the truth. So when I was thinking about world building in this, I would just like force myself to slow down and kind of look around and try to think, you know, don't take anything for granted. Like why, why do they have to like, why do we eat on plates? Like, why do we use forks? Why do we shape our vehicle the way we shape? Like what if there was a world where they didn't have these, uh, these things we take for granted as like the way things inevitably turn out, you know, like, um, I, I'm sorry. I'm not, I feel like I'm not expressing this very well, no, no, you are. but, but I think technology forms partly because of a person's priorities or a culture's priorities. So if you have a culture with a different set of priorities, mm. then technology will change. Yes. And um, and I learned that partially when we were living in Romania, uh, right after we got married. Mm-hmm. We lived there for five months. And, mm. um, you know, because of, like, resources in the country and because of um, just, like, limited availability of certain things, they've had to get really creative with the way that they – uh, do like security systems and, you know, uh, heating, like there's a big hot water heater in the apartment where we lived and it did both the heat for the apartment and also for the, you know, sinks and stuff. So it was this like little system. They made it smaller and smaller, but I've never seen something like that in the state. So I, it got me thinking, I guess, about, you know, these cultures and, and what they would value the most and where they would focus their priorities yeah why were you living in romania um (laughs) adventure mostly okay (laughs) my uh my husband's aunt and uncle have lived there for 15 years working in the arts and theater community in cluj in transylvania so we went to go be with them for a while wow and uh yeah go on an adventure so when you are immersed in this world and also a story that you're writing, like as you are now with the second book, um, mm-hmm. it, it, I know that a lot of authors literally live and breathe it until the, until the end, until it's out, and, and then, you know, potentially they kind of miss it. But uh, do you live and breathe it and, and do you have time to – or are you able to switch off? Do you have time to relax, like, and, and not even think about – the book that you're writing? Um, I'm working on that. I think <laughs> that is probably an important skill for mental health and the good yes. of everyone around you. <laughs> but yes. I'm not so good at it. No, I'm definitely more of a live and breathe it kind of person. Wow. Okay. So what do you, do you, do you do things to relax? <laughs> I, I try. Like, do you have yeah, hobbies? I, um, <laughs> I, I do. I, I run a lot um, and cycle and uh, I did kickboxing for a while, although I had to stop because of my shoulder. Um, oh. So there's that, that part of things. But mm-hmm. um, yes, there's a bit of combat. There's a bit of a combat theme in, <laughs> in your writing as I well. I'm clearly obsessed with it. Uh, yeah. So I finally did kickboxing because I was like, you've loved this your whole life. You should go try it. And it was awesome. Uh-huh. Um, I hope to get back to it once I figure out this shoulder problem, but, mm-hmm. um, it was great. I think the, probably the combat stuff in Carve the Mark is more realistic than Divergent because I had learned a lot more at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. What's the most rewarding thing about writing? Um, oh my, well, uh, I kind of have two, two answers to this. Mm-hmm. To me, the most rewarding part is the process of it. Like I love mm. revising 
Um, I'm not a big first drafter because then you've got to make a lot of mistakes and just move on. And that's hard for me. But I love finding the character, finding the story that you really meant to tell. Um, and that kind of you built as you went along without realizing it and helping it to come out, um, you know, more clearly and more compellingly than you did the first time. So that's, I mean, to me, that's the whole reason to do it. Um, but I also have discovered something I didn't, I didn't know that I would love so much, which is um, seeing the way that young people connect to the story. So I think this is why I'm so determinedly writing for young adults, because this is such a valuable part of the process for me. It's not um, getting their acclaim for it, you know, or their praise for it. It's yeah. seeing what they pull out of the story as important, what they care about the most, um, and the things that they realize about their own lives, you know, that are sparked by like the reading. So I get letters from them and I talk to them in person and it's such a huge part of what makes it, uh, I don't know what makes it rewarding for me that I just didn't, you know, I'm, um, I'm a little bit socially anxious, but I didn't know that I would like that as much as I do. Wow. Have some of the things that they've pulled out of it been surprising to you? Sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, I can't think of a specific example, but, Mm -hmm. um, Oh, I guess um, I got a really heartbreaking letter once from someone who had experienced like a similar kind of abuse to what uh, Tobias experiences in Divergent. Yep. And this person was just telling me how helpful it was to see a young man go through that and still be presented as like a strong person. Um, mm. And I, I like, I mean, I just like sobbed over this letter mm. because I hadn't thought about it Um I, you know, when I thought about it, it was like, oh, God, I hope this is doing justice to this, like, really, you know, difficult experience and not treating it flippantly. So that was my only goal, really. Um, mm. But to hear that it resonated with that one person was, like, incredibly meaningful. And, and it was surprising because I was sure that I hadn't, um, that I had failed Wow. in some way. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's very moving. Um, so what is one of the most challenging things about writing what do you find one of the most challenging things about writing oh man just letting go of that voice that's like you're messing up don't do that like (laughs) this isn't working it's never going to be good enough um you know (laughs) sure of course yes we all go through that all right (laughs) sorry i know that internal editor they are terrible (laughs) yes what's then finally what's your advice for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position where you are one day you know with successful books some of them maybe in in made into films but you know certainly published oh um hmm. well i i think it's all about having this tension of of humility and like self-advocacy. So um, you have to believe in your story, but you also have to believe that it can be better. And it's a a weird balancing act, I think. But um, if you're in love with the process of writing and you're committed to being a better writer with each story that you write, then, but you're also like uh, aware of your strengths, um, then you can advocate for your book without being stubborn. And, It's a you know it's a little trial and error. Like I bounce back and forth like a pendulum um, all the time still. Um, but uh, you know I do believe in my in my work. Um, I also believe in in myself and my capacity to get better. So yeah. I try to listen to feedback. But if it doesn't resonate, then I let it go. 
Wonderful. Well, you're obviously doing something right, Veronica. So (laughs) on that note, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great interview, Val. It sounds like a really, really great book. So mm. when, when you know, can I race out and buy it now or what? Uh, no, it's actually not out till January. Oh. Uh, so good summer reading. Yeah, good summer reading. Not out till January, but you can actually pre-order the book now, which I'm sure lots and lots of people are doing. And I already know that my local bookshop is, you know, getting ready for it. So there you go, Veronica Roth. And I hope that listeners got a lot out of that interview. Mm. All right, let's move on then to our platform building tip this week. What is it? (laughs) What is it? What a good question. I'm so glad you asked me that. Um, Well, I thought we might have a little chat today about newsletters, and it's probably quite timely given our recent conversation about email inboxes Um, because, of course, email inboxes are incredibly crowded places uh, these days, as we all know, and – which doesn't mean that I don't think that authors should have a newsletter. But I think the key to making sure that you, you know, have a successful newsletter is to make it so readable that people will tolerate your presence in their crowded inboxes and, in fact, open your emails. Mm. So I guess my question to you would be um, what, like, what can authors do to make their newsletters so compelling that people will just not only want to stay subscribed mm. but will read on a you know monthly basis or however often you send it out couple of things. I think that it needs to be useful. And I think that's Mm. the key word, useful. So one of the things that, for example, the Australian Writers Centre does with our newsletter, even though we're not an author newsletter as such, is provide useful links to resources and and, um, articles and just useful, you know, tools. I I think that your newsletter is a great example as well of not only, so what you do, which I think is great, and people, you should sign up to Alison's newsletter because it is a great (laughs) example of what I'm about to say is Alison not only gives you a little bit of news about what's happening with her, so it's a little peek into her life and the connection with her, but I, for one, love the fact that it is – you kind of curate – some content and it's not always your content. It, no. it's, some of it is yours, but it's also just interesting links to other things that your readership would find useful. And I think that that, and again, see that word useful, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that curation, because not everyone has the time to go search the internet to look at, you know, look for things that they're gonna that are gonna be relevant to them. And I think that curation has a lot of value. So I think that uh, if you're gonna do an author newsletter, it is a, a combination of that peek into what's going into your life so that people can still connect with you, resonate with you, and obviously find out if you've got some news, like a new book coming out, but also um, a curation of links that are useful. I think that that would be, um, particularly for authors. Now, I might have a different take if it was, you know, if you were a chiropractor or Mm. if you were something else, but that is certainly my advice for author newsletters. Yes, I think so too. And I think the other thing to remember too is that, and I think this is possibly, so I I subscribe to quite a few author newsletters, obviously. I like to see what other people are doing. Um, Obviously, there's authors that I'm just really interested in, but I just like to see how people manage their their newsletter stuff. And there's a, there's a, 
uh, so a lot of the romance authors that I subscribe to, most of their newsletter content is reader-based. It's quite interesting. Like they very much are focused on their readership. So it's about I, you know, this is me and this is what I'm doing and here's my new book because they often have a lot of books coming out. Like yes. there's a lot of books, you know, yes. there's a new book every five minutes yes. or so it feels like sometimes. Yes. And I think, how do they do this? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. So there, And then there are other authors who will uh, who will only write for writers, which I think is an interesting thing. So because yes. um, I think that balance between talking to readers and talking to writers can be quite a difficult one. Yes. Um, and that curation thing that you talk about, I think is something that is, is, is a very good way to balance those two things. Um, because you talk about yourself, you talk about your readers, reader stuff, but you offer interesting content, which may not always be specifically about writing, which I think is some, is something yes. that's quite important to, very to remember. Important. Yeah. So it and, might and be, I think it, that that's very important because if you're curating things that aren't about writing, it's still really interesting to me because it gives me an insight into what you find useful and interesting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's that right. it, it speaks volumes about other aspects about you. So I think that that is absolutely right. And I think someone who actually does this very well, um, it's, a, it's a relatively recent newsletter that I've signed up for. It's actually weekly, which is um, a lot for an author mm. um, to, to manage. Mm. Um, it's a guy called Austin Cleon, and he oh, yes. is the author of a book called Steal Like an Artist, yes. which is an interesting <laughs> which is a really interesting book. But he sends out every Friday, I think it is, a a newsletter which contains a a list of 10, always 10, links that he has found during the week that he has found interesting. And yeah. they are on a whole range of subjects. They are there's art-based stuff, there's there's writer-based stuff, there's there's politics, there's just the, it's just things that have grabbed his attention during the week and it is a really interesting newsletter because um there's always one thing on there that i'm that i that i will read yes there's always one it's not 10 but there's always one and so i i keep the newsletter i keep the subscription to see what he's going to send next it's quite it's an interesting approach to the newsletter he doesn't actually um and generally one of those links will be about something that he's doing like a new book or whatever the other nine are about other people um and it's just a it's an interesting approach and it seems to work really well for him because i think his newsletter is is you know yeah I think he's got lots and lots and lots of subscribers. Oh yes, it is a very popular book. It's a very quick and easy read too. Mm. If, you, if anyone wants to to get it, it's um mm. it's good. Mm. All right, wonderful. So of course, if um, you're interested in building your own author platform and creating your own list of you know, newsletter subscribers, uh, make sure you do because this and other fantastic platform building tips are in Alison's course, How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more at writercenter.com.au slash platform. So this brings us to the end of this week's podcast. What are you up to this coming week? Uh, well, obviously I'm writing a book, so that's keeping me pretty busy. But I'm also I'm heading up to Sydney for a meeting to talk about the Mapmaker Chronicles movie, uh, yes. uh, which will be interesting. And I also will be on Saturday the 12th, I will be giving a three-hour workshop on how to build your author platform at the Wollongong Central Library. So um, I think there's one or two places left if if anybody is interested, you will find the details at the 
uh, South Coast Writers Centre website, and it's uh, basically an opportunity if you want. It's a it's a dip your toe in the waters kind of thing. It's nowhere near as comprehensive as my Writers Centre course, but it's a dip your toe in the waters and an opportunity to ask me face to face questions if you're interested. Great, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Well, we're going to pass like ships in the night because as you come up to Sydney, I'll be heading to Melbourne oh. to um, yes run a full day course. Hopefully, my voice will come back fully by then because I got to talk for eight hours um a full day course on how to build your profile so uh that's going to be fun mm, with a group that of people sounds great look at us just you know talking it up in different states <laughs> there you go. as we do all right then um where do we find you online Al you will find me at alisontate.com uh, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where you'll, do we find you? Yes, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. I've kind of, like, given up on Snapchat a bit. Um <laughs> <laughs> And you can – I'm Valerie Koo in Sydney uh, on Facebook. So feel free to connect with us and we'd love to hear from you. And um, if you do – remember, if you do use your word of the week in your blog – I know it's a little bit of a hard one this time – do let us know. We'd love to see it in action. All mm. right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We look forward to chatting to you again next week. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.